I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1. As you turn there, I want to remind you about an, of another parable of Jesus. It's one of the shortest parables that Jesus ever told. And yet, I... Okay, today, it's my favorite. It might change. But if you've been around for any length of time, you've heard me reference this parable before because I do love it. It's from Matthew 13. Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And he says this. In his joy... He goes and sells everything he has, and he buys that field. I love that. It's a two-sentence parable that speaks volumes about the value and the worth and the joy of knowing God and being part of his kingdom. Did you get the story? There's a man. He goes out in a field. We don't know if he's trespassing or allowed to be there. But he's in this field, and he finds a treasure and he knows that he can't just take the treasure. That would be theft. But here's what he can do. He can buy that field. And so he goes and he sells everything he has. Jesus says he goes in joy. He joyfully sells everything so that he can buy that field joyfully giving up everything else because he knows it's worth it for the sake of the treasure. Isn't that a cool story? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, which is to say there is nothing of greater value than knowing God and being known by God. Even if you have to give up everything else, it's worth it. This parable reminds us that our greatest joy is found in God. It reminds us that if we hang on to anything or love anything more than God, then we are choosing a lesser joy. I thought about this parable this week when I was in 2 Timothy, because in 2 Timothy we have a repeated call. A call to sacrifice, to suffering, to difficulty for the sake of the gospel. But along with that, we have this underlying theme that it will always be worth it, that there's nothing of greater value, there's nothing more worthy of sacrifice than the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of salvation. And the aim of our time this morning is this, that we would leave here with just a little greater appreciation for the depth of joy that's found in the gospel, the, the value and the worth of the message of salvation. It's a message we should love and guard and steward and proclaim. And it seems to me a lofty goal to be able to raise your affections for the gospel Paul puts this at the beginning of this letter, I think, for a reason. If we don't understand the value and the worth of the gospel, then all of the call to sacrifice, all of the call to stewardship, all of the call to suffering, for what? Well, this morning we're going to talk about the for what. 
the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. And hopefully what we've done up to this point in our service has already begun training us to think about the grace of God and how much we need it. Before we read the text, let me tell you a little bit about this letter and the context we're jumping into. We, we did a, a much bigger um, dive into this last week, but maybe you weren't here. Second Timothy is a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was arguably the greatest missionary in history. We can't tell the story of the early church without saying a lot about this man, Paul. Of course, if you flip through your New Testament, the books on either side of 2 Timothy, you're going to keep saying a letter from Paul. He, he wrote many of the books of our New Testament. But this letter, this letter of 2 Timothy, it's, it's actually the last letter that we have that he wrote before his death. So chronologically, it's the last of the letters of the New Testament from Paul. And when he writes this particular letter, he writes it not from the desk in his office. We don't know that he ever had one of those. But he, he writes this one from a Roman prison. We read later in this letter that he is bound in chains and that he believes that very soon he'll die. Not of natural causes, but of a Roman sword cutting off his head. This is a letter written by a dying saint. And it's written to Timothy, his son in the faith and his partner in the gospel. I mentioned this last week. If you were to write your final words as you await your execution, we, we could ask what would the, the theme of our letter be. Yet what we see, Paul's theme, his primary concern is that even though death is imminent, the thing he desires more than anything else is to encourage Timothy to press on, to keep going, to keep doing the work of ministry. Now, again, Paul's in prison. He's about to be killed, and Timothy knows that. He knows that his friend is, and his mentor is about to lose his life because of the message that they have been preaching. Now, Paul writes a letter, and he doesn't tell Timothy to lay low. He doesn't tell him to be careful. He tells him to press on. See, Paul knows that Timothy has a difficult road ahead of him. And he also knows that Timothy is tempted to fear. We talked about this last week. He's lacking courage. He's lacking boldness. So Paul writes to encourage steadfastness. What we're going to hear this morning in our text is this charge from Paul where he's going to tell Timothy, don't be ashamed. In fact, be willing to suffer. In just a minute, I'm going to read verses 8 to 14 of 2 Timothy 1. And you're going to hear these exhortations to stand tall and to press on and to guard the gospel, to steward it well. And yet, we're not really going to talk much about that this morning. It's the main theme of the passage, so you heard it here. I didn't miss the main theme, but we're actually going to come back to that next week. Today, we're going to zoom in on two verses that are in the middle of this section, verses 9 and 10, where Paul unpacks the essence and the realities of the gospel. And I think this is worth our time setting one week aside for just these two verses 
Because like I said a while ago, if we don't understand the beauty of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, the, the necessity of the gospel, then we may never really understand why it's worth suffering for, why it's something to be unashamed of. So we're going to go deep here in the middle. And the next week we'll come back and say, if that's true, then here's how we should then respond. So we're in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse number 8. Hear the word of God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you were with us last week, you may remember that Timothy, he's a pastor now at a church in a city called Ephesus. And it's a hard church. We learn from the book of Ephesians and from the book of Acts, it's a church that has division. There are false teachers. There's this constant threat of persecution. There's also this reality that Paul, his mentor, and the one who told him what to do is in jail, about to die. So Timothy has a hard calling. And we considered last week his fear. If you look back at verse 7, 6 and 7, Paul's telling Timothy, fan into flame the gift that's in you. And recognize you've not been given a spirit of fear, but no, you've been given a, a spirit of power and love and self-control. So he's, he's recognizing Timothy's timidity, his hesitancy, and he's calling him to be, to be bold and courageous. And then we pick up in our verse 8 where he says, therefore, right? Because you've been given the spirit of power and love and self-control, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He knows the temptation is to shrink back, to grow quiet, to cower. To use the words of the text, the temptation is to be ashamed of the message of Christ. I have to guess that we all know what that feels like in our own context. You've probably been in situations where you had an opportunity to speak for Christ. To tell someone the hope you have because of Jesus. But maybe in that moment you were stopped by fear of embarrassment or the fear of rejection, or some other kind of fear. It's common, isn't it? To, to lack boldness, courage. 
So it's good for us to hear this encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, which is to say, don't be afraid to speak clearly of Christ. And he goes on and says, don't be ashamed of me. The fact that I'm in prison. Wouldn't it have been tempting? You know, there's, there's people coming to church and they, they know what's going on with Paul. And maybe Timothy would be tempted to say, yeah, I love Paul. He's a good dude. He's a little extreme, right? I'm, I'm not quite as radical as Paul. Not that dogmatic or that, that out of the box. It could have been a temptation for Timothy to kind of walk it back a little bit. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. And know that I represent the testimony of Christ, so don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed. And he goes further. He says, be ready to suffer for the gospel. There's really two sides of the same coin. For them, in their context, in this time, to, to be bold for Christ was to expect suffering. The reality was, if Timothy was bold and courageous, suffering would come. So Paul's encouraging him, don't live in fear. Don't live in shame. Stand tall. Be ready to suffer. And suffer knowing that you will be sustained by the power of God. We see that at the end of verse 8. Share in suffering by the gospel by the power of God. God will sustain you. Spent longer there than I intended. That's the call. Don't be ashamed. Be willing to suffer. And we get that encouragement again later on as we go from verses 11 to 14. But before we get there, we have verses 9 and 10, a section that if you outline the text and you should outline the text, I hope you're doing this. You're, you're looking at it. You're trying to, to follow the text. And it almost seems like this part should be in a parenthesis. And yet it's, it's really the heart of the passage because this is the message for which we're to not be ashamed and willing to suffer. So Paul slows down, and Paul is wont to do this, to kind of just step aside and spend some time speaking very carefully and specifically about the truth. And we're just going to unpack these two verses kind of just phrase by phrase and consider what Paul says about the grace that we've been given. And, and, and to ask the question, are we, do we love, do we believe this deeply enough that we'd be willing to be bold and courageous and even to suffer? So let's look at the text again. He says in verse 8, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then he starts this section, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. He saved us. Paul's in prison because he preached this message. And yet, even though he is awaiting his death, He's not bitter towards God. He's not angry. In fact, I love this. He's maybe even writing this for his own benefit as much as Timothy's. He's just reveling in the gospel of God, gospel of salvation. Be willing to suffer, Timothy, by the power of God, who, by the way, is the one who saved us. Saved. 
It's one of those words that the Bible uses a lot, especially in the New Testament. It's a word that as Christians, we use quite a bit. We say things like, we've been saved by God, or we ask God to save someone else. We pray for the salvation of those we love. We use that language, and it's, we should. It's biblical language. I cut out the section where I listed like 20 passages in the New Testament that, that, that speak of what God has done that's saved us and salvation. It's not just a term that Baptists invented in 1955. It's a biblical word, which brings the question, what does it mean that he saved us? Well, first of all, it's a reminder that there was something that we needed to be saved from. See, the Bible tells us that we're all born in sin. Because of sin, we are all guilty before God. Because of our guilt, we're all deserving of God's wrath and his judgment. And so here's how that plays out. If we remain in our sin, when life is over, we will stand before God, and we will, because of our sin, be condemned to everlasting punishment. And church, I know for most of you, you know this. But just allow these realities to, to sit because it's going to help us as we keep going. We are all born guilty and deserving of punishment. But God in his grace sent his son to make a way for us to be forgiven. Through Jesus, we just sang, we're granted righteousness. We're made right before God. We are saved. Saved from sin, saved from death, saved from punishment. I told you the story about my neighbor when I was little and his dad came to our church and became a Christian and I was telling my next door neighbor, I'm so glad your dad got saved. And he said, from what? And I said, I don't know. I know now. Jesus saves us from sin and from death and from punishment. Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Friend, if you're in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus, you are saved. And this is what we stake our eternities on. It's what Paul wants Timothy to remember. Don't be ashamed. Be willing to suffer. After all, he saved us. We didn't deserve it, but he did it. Paul says in his first letter to Timothy, it was your homework to read it, so I'm sure you did. You'll remember back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, and I'm the worst of them. Jesus came and salvation is available for sinners. It's our hope. God saves us from sin. He saves us from death. And he saves us to something. He saves us to holiness and righteousness. Go back to verse 9. He saved us and he called us to a holy calling. Which is to say, not only does he take us and forgive us, but he takes people who are sinful and 
willingly sinning, and he moves us and changes us into people who, who love holiness, who love righteousness, who desire obedience. And he does it. He transforms us into people with different hearts and different passions and different desires. He saves us and he calls us to holiness, to this holy calling. We're a people being transformed by his power into his likeness. So, friend, if you're here and you love Christ, and if you do desire to please him, and if you are striving to obey him, it's because he saved you. And he called you and is transforming you into his kind of person. Why was Paul willing to suffer what he did? And why would he now tell Timothy to to do the same? Because he felt this at his core. God saved me. And yet here's something that makes the salvation all the more amazing. It gets better. We're not saved based on anything that we do or have done. We're saved wholly and completely by the grace of God. That's what Paul says next, if we keep reading. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, we've already got a sense of this in the last verse. Who saved us? He saved us, right? Who called us to a holy calling? He called us to a holy calling. And yet, if we stop right there, we still may be able to convince ourselves that the reason he did those things is because something we did. That he saves us because we're noble or do good things. That he saves us because he could tell that we, we were really trying pretty hard. That he saves us because we go to church or give to the poor or live honestly. You should do all those things, church. But we're not saved because we do. This is where salvation becomes all the more amazing. What the Bible says over and over, and what Paul says here, is that we aren't saved based on what we do. We are saved and called not because of our works. And again, this is like back to the basics day, isn't it? You're like, yeah, I got it. I I know the gospel. Let's trade places. I could do this. And Paul's not reminding Timothy of anything he didn't already know. But isn't it, important for us to to recognize that God saves, and he saves us not because of what we've done. we're, We're constantly tempted, I think, because of our pride to think somehow we did something that made God soften his heart towards us. That's not the case. Paul says in Ephesians 2, I think we read it together earlier, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that so that you can't boast. He says something similar in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. The scriptures couldn't be more clear. If you've been saved, it's not because of anything you did. But Okay, so here's the question. He saved us not because of what we have done. So why are we saved? What's... On what basis are we saved? Keep reading. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, 
not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Here's the reason. We are saved because God made a plan to show grace to sinners. What's grace? A, a good phrase is, is unmerited, unearned favor. It's favor that's not deserved or earned. If it could be deserved or earned, then it's not grace. And this is, this is why we are saved. Because God had a plan to show grace to sinners. We'll talk later about how we receive that grace. But this is the basis. We're not saved based on our works, but we're saved because of his purpose and grace. I wonder if, and maybe this is just a confession because Maybe I, I was tempted to feel this as I wrote it. <laughs> I wonder if you get here and think, all right, get on to something I don't know yet. And yet, should we, and I'm just posing the question, should we ever grow tired or begrudge an opportunity to think deeply about what we've been given in Christ? These are realities that we should never stop being amazed by. That God, of his own volition and his own will, made a plan to show grace to sinners. And if you're here and you've believed, you've believed because he included you in his plan of grace. And that should leave us humbled and grateful. It should move us to praise and to worship that the holy God of the universe would show grace to you and me. Think again about where we are in this letter. This is the message that Paul is in prison for. And this is the message that he's telling Timothy to not be ashamed of. It's the message he's telling Timothy to be willing to suffer for. A little later he's going to say, guard it, steward it. And yet, we are often tempted to neglect it, to think little of it, even to be ashamed of it. And this is why Paul writes to Timothy. So if, if you've been there and you've felt that, then know that you're not alone. Timothy was there and he felt it. And Paul's writing to encourage him. And now we get the same encouragement. And Paul is just rehearsing these truths. Don't be ashamed of this. He saved us. He called us to a holy calling, and it's not based on anything you've done. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it, but God made a plan to show grace to sinners. And it's a plan, it says here in the text, that was made before time. Verse 9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so if there's any part of us that still thinks that somehow we, we earned it, this should be the nail in the coffin of our self-righteousness. Paul says the grace that we've been shown in Christ is grace that was granted to us before time. Which is to say, before God created man, he knew that we would sin. He knew we would rebel against him. 
he knew that he would send his son to purchase salvation. And before time, God chose to show grace to sinners. God had a plan of salvation and eternity passed and he has been faithful to fulfill that plan. It's what he talks about in Ephesians chapter one. Again, Paul just has these, these outbursts of praise and Ephesians one is one of the best. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He's describing God's plan of grace. And we have this repeated phrase over and over in Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. And we should echo that, church, to the praise of his grace. It's by his grace that you are saved. Paul's doing a little time travel exercise with us. You're a recipient of grace today. Grace that was granted to you by God before eternity and grace that appeared in flesh in time. Back to the text, he says, it's grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. We've got the story of redemption here. From creation, and before creation, God had a plan to save people, to save sinners. And Paul says, there came a time when grace appeared. His name is Jesus. He came, Galatians says, in the fullness of time. Here's, so here's the question we have to answer. Because I've told you, he saved us. We were sinners. We didn't earn it. So important questions here. How can a holy God show grace and grant forgiveness to sinners and still be considered just? Right? We think about a court of law. If a judge takes someone who's guilty and everyone knows they're guilty and sends them on their way, then Twitter blows up, right? Because just judges can't be unjust. They're, they shouldn't be. And God, being holy, cannot be unjust. So, how are we pardoned? If he pardons sinners without punishment, doesn't that make him unjust? The answer to the question is, yes, it would. But God made a plan for our punishment to be cared for. This is his plan of grace. Verse 10, it was manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. How is it that we can be saved? We're saved, Galatians says, because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Christ comes, born of a virgin, lives life just like you and I, yet without sin. He dies on the cross, the just for the unjust. He rises from the dead in victory over sin, and he does it all so that we can be saved. If you repent of your sins, if you trust in him, you're a recipient of the grace of God that's been made available to you through Christ. Paul says in 
Titus 2. And I love that Paul kind of just like copies and pastes his sermons into different places as well. We see a lot of these same themes showing up in all his letters. Um, Titus 2, he says, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Insert, called to a holy calling. Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are saved by grace through Christ. There's a, a lot that we could say about what Christ accomplished on the cross, but here Paul just gives us two things, really big things. Back to verse 9, which this grace, which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who did two things, abolished death. Talked about in Sunday school, right? Big. And brought life and immortality and light through the gospel. I think a lot about the writers of Scripture, and Paul in particular, who's... Death is imminent. And yet he sits in this Roman prison and he writes, he saved us. He called us to a holy calling. Not because of anything I've done, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave me in Christ before the ages began. Grace that was shown through Christ. The one who has abolished death. What is our only hope in life and death? Christ alone. We sang earlier. What we know is that because of sin, death exists. When God created us, death was not the plan, but because of sin, death becomes a part of our story. We're all born dead spiritually, and a time will come when every one of us will die physically if Christ doesn't return first. And yet we can die confident that Christ has abolished death, which is to say it's been made ineffective. For the Christian, it doesn't take. Yes, we'll die. But in Christ, we have hope. If you're in Christ, your spirit is alive and will never die. And while your body will die, your spirit will live. And one day your body will be raised and you will live with God forever. And this is our hope in Christ Immortality, eternal life. Lots of passages we could go to to celebrate and to consider this. Uh, probably the best one is 1 Corinthians 15. Read the chapter this afternoon before the Cowboys game. <laughs> it's not the Niner game, Brian. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that has been written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? And 
death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who through Christ gives us victory. Because of Christ, if you're in him, you live forever. Death has no victory. To be clear, everyone lives forever. The hope of the Christian is that we live with God and we're not subject to eternal punishment. I love the story of Lazarus. Remember, he, a friend of Jesus who died. Jesus goes to where he was to, to be with the family and ultimately to raise Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus has a conversation with Lazarus' sister, Martha, who's frustrated because if Jesus had been there sooner, she believes that he could have saved Lazarus from dying. But Jesus comforts Martha by telling her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. When we put it like that, it seems silly to be ashamed of that, doesn't it? <laughs> that life is available through Christ. Why would we be ashamed to announce that to everyone? There is life. I think that's an important phrase at the end of verse 10. Through the gospel. Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Which I think is a way of reminding us that there is a way for us to know that this is true of us. How can we know that life is ours? That death for us has been abolished? Well, this is hope that we receive through the gospel. We're told in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's that word again. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, and he bestows riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can talk over lunch about how that's not a work because you believe because he grants you grace before time. Because of grace, you've been brought to faith and repentance. And if you repent and believe, you will be saved. If you don't, if you're not sure, if you're in that category, if you're not sure you could confidently say with Paul, I'm saved and death has been abolished for me and I have eternal life, then, man, I would encourage you to, to talk to, to someone around you, to talk to me. We should want to confidently say that we're in this category and the scriptures say that we can know that we are. Friend, it's our only hope. This is the glorious gospel of the grace of God. Let me go back to where we started as we finish. I told you that my hope for today was that you'd be reminded of the beauty and the value of the gospel. That you would be convinced anew today that there's, no, there's nothing of greater value and worth than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we just took some time just to dig deep and to consider again what it is that God has done for us through Christ.
But I want to end by reminding you that the big point of this passage is a call to unashamedness. That's not a word. I'll find, I'll find the right word before next week. As those who have the gospel, we have been called to live in boldness and not fear, to not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, and even to be willing to suffer for his sake. Paul is an example for us. Not only did he understand the gospel, and not only did he write about the gospel, but it changed him. And, and this is something I, I took some time to examine my heart and confess yesterday, because the nerd in us can really enjoy understanding all the intricacies of what God has done. That can be fun, right? I've got books on my shelf that spend thousands of pages talking about all the layers of the grace of God and how it gets to us. And if you're going to have a hobby, it's as good as any. But friend, if we can do all that work and have all that understanding, and yet the gospel hasn't changed us, and the gospel is not something we love or speak of or cling to, then we really probably should have no confidence in Christ for ourselves. Friend, this is a message of hope. It's the message that we can sit beside the bed of a dying friend and cling to. It's the message we can take to someone who has sinned in ways that are unspeakable and grant assurance. It's the greatest message. It's our only hope. And it's of this that Paul says in verse 12, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We'll talk more about that next week, but until then, may we be faithful. Let's pray together.